This episode of the Burning Bush Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's hands down one of the easiest ways to make a podcast, especially if you're just getting started. And here's why. First, it's completely free. And second, their online platform and app make creating episodes a breeze. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Third, and this is huge, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Simply just create your account and you'll start to see your podcast available on all of the major platforms. Fourth, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Literally everything you need to make a podcast is available all in one place and on one platform. To get started today, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm. Again, that's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. And now, back to the episode. Thank you for listening to the Burning Bush Podcast. This is the kickoff episode of our very first series titled Our Beliefs. In this series, we're going to talk all about the things that make up the foundation of the Christian faith, starting with the Bible. We believe the scriptures, consisting of both the Old and New Testaments, are divinely inspired and without error in their original writings, and they are, therefore, our final authority in faith and life. Why we believe the Bible is true. Let's start with a broader question. How do we know that anything is true? Well, this truly is a technical question in epistemology or the theory of knowledge. So we need to ask ourselves, how do we test claims of truth? Most of the time, when we're looking for an answer to how the world works, or why things are the way they are, we're able to test certain claims through observation, forming a hypothesis, experimenting, and then collecting and analyzing the data based on what we learn. However, as far as we're concerned today, we're looking at the history and claims of the Bible to understand its truth and credibility, or inerrancy. R.C. Sproul states, as far as the history of Jesus is concerned, and as far as we know any history, we want to check the stories of scripture using those means by which historical evidence can be tested, through archaeology for example. Or put simply, when we read or learn about historical claims in scripture, we can test those claims by the common standards of historiography. Now let's talk about the case for biblical inerrancy. In fact, the term of biblical inerrancy is relatively new and coined within the last 100 years or so, but is a clear biblical concept. Examining evidence for the inerrancy of the Bible is a huge topic, but is unbelievably important. Benjamin B. Warfield, who was a professor of theology at Princeton University, has this awesome quote that says, The trustworthiness of the scriptures lies at the foundation of trust in the Christian system of doctrine and is therefore fundamental to the Christian hope and life. With that being said, in this episode, we're going to go over a brief summary of the argument for biblical inerrancy, as well as some of the evidence we've examined, but we're not going to take a deep dive into the intricacies that surround this topic, as it is massive. And one more thing uh, before we start, I want to make a disclaimer. As with almost any subject, it is important to understand that there are extremes on either side that people take, and you may see people claim that the authorial intent of every single word of scripture is meant to be scientifically precise or exact, but that's not the case. There are many places in scripture where the language of the original writing is meant to be ambiguous, and this is why it is so important to not take verses out of context. We should always allow the context to determine whether the writer is speaking in generalities or is trying to be precise. Okay, so let's dive in. 
it's important that we're examining the Bible as accurately as possible. We need to know that the translations that we have today are an accurate representation of the original text. Fortunately, we can have a high degree of certainty regarding the actual wording of the original text for the vast majority of passages in both the Old and New Testaments and many translations provide a careful representation of the biblical text. There are three premises that make up the argument for biblical inerrancy. And these are premise A, premise B, and premise C. So premise A states that every utterance of God is perfect and therefore free from error. Premise B says all of the claims of truth of the biblical writers are utterances of God. And premise C says all of the claims of truth of the biblical writers are free from error. Now, if you've studied philosophy or debate or things like that, you may have noticed that this is what's called a deductive argument. And that means that in order for the conclusion, in this case, premise C, which states all of the claims of truth of the biblical writers are free from error, in order for that statement to be true, then both premise A and premise B must be true as well. So let's dive in and let's examine each one of these premises and break them down, starting with premise A. Now, again, premise A states that every utterance of God is perfect and therefore free from error. And we see this in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that God does not lie. And we also see in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, that he's omnipotent or all-knowing. And to put all that simply, we can gather from these two passages that God does not say anything that is contradictory to the way that things truly are. In being omniscient, he is morally perfect. And writers of the Old Testament tell us that the words of God are pure, and we see this in passages such as Psalms chapter 12, verse 6, and Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. Further, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15 that Scripture is the word of truth, and goes on to say in Romans 9.1 that the truth excludes the possibility of lying. There is nothing spoken by God that is contrary to what is true. We see this in Scripture. So, we're able to deduce that premise A is therefore true. Now let's move on to premise B. Again, premise B says, All of the claims of truth of the biblical writers are utterances of God. And John Piper has this awesome quote that says, Inerrancy is, after all, a corollary of inspiration. So we see in 2 Timothy 3.16 that scripture is breathed out by God. It is truthful in everything that it affirms. And further, we were able to see that God, who has breathed out his word, did so in a way that is truthful. And again, another quote from John Piper when he says, What else would we expect from a triune God who is truth itself? And he backs us up from John 118, 840, 146, 17:3 and 17, 1837, and 1 John 4, 6. So after examining premise B, in scripture, we're able to see that, yes, that is true. All of the claims of truth of the biblical writers are utterances of God. So, as with deductive arguments, if we believe premise A and premise B to be true, then premise C, which again is all claims of truth of the biblical writers are free from error, that must be true. If A and B are true, then C is true. So with this in mind, we must approach scripture from a stance of faith. We have to trust that the scripture is inerrant when interpreted properly and in the original writing. Unfortunately, it's not uncommon for some translations and individuals to misinterpret scripture. And it happens all the time. And this is a form of false teaching. 
When people believe false teachers, this can lead to a multitude of problems, such as finding contradictory statements between what they were falsely taught and scripture. And again, we say this all the time, but study, read, and know scripture to avoid false teaching and to fully understand that inerrant message of the Bible. So now that we've discussed the inerrancy of the Bible, let's go into a brief historical and biblical account for the authority of the Bible. In the discussions between church fathers about the canon's extent, leaders didn't speak of quote-unquote declaring certain books to be inspired of the Holy Spirit. Rather, they used the Latin word recipimus, or we receive. In using the Latin for we receive, the church spoke passively. It was the belief that God had spoken, and the church's responsibility was to just simply recognize His voice, and absolutely not the position of the church to will certain writings into canon. Further, we see with the early church the importance that they placed on apostolic leadership, and this is evident in the Pauline epistles, which are the books of Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Titus, and 1st and 2nd Timothy as well as apostolic endorsement from Mark, who summarizes the preaching of Peter. Other writings like the Shepherd of Hermas, while useful for edification and written by a faithful Christian, were finally excluded because they had no direct link to an apostle. Or, such as the case with the Shepherd of Hermas, and we'll dive into this more in a future series, even oppose the teaching of Scripture. And as Ligonier Ministry states, and they say this so well, the temptation to put the church's authority over the authority of scripture can even be found among Protestants. Liberal denominations may elevate the findings of study committees on sexuality and other issues over what the Bible actually teaches. And fundamentalists may elevate church rules against drinking or dancing above scripture's teaching. Some of us may treat church confessions as if they were of greater authority than the word. So let us strive to give scripture its due. So now comes the part of the podcast where we're going to talk about something that I know is controversial and will probably ruffle a few feathers, but we're doing this because it's important, unbelievably important, to know what Scripture says and to be able to recognize whenever it isn't being applied correctly, especially in the name of God. So this next section is going to be over the authority of the Bible and the Catholic Church. So, Catholicism during the medieval ages taught that the canon of scripture, or the collection of books that make up the Holy Bible, derives its authority from the Catholic Church. In other words, Rome believed back then, and still does to this day, that the books in the Bible are inspired scripture because the Catholic Church says so. And this view obviously should be highly concerning, as it shows blatant blasphemy in the thought process behind the Catholic canonization of scripture. And ultimately, what we see Catholics saying here is that the Catholic Church is above Scripture and its authority, which is obviously untrue. And just to put it bluntly, we adamantly reject the Catholic Church's belief that they are above Scripture and authority whatsoever. So this viewpoint of the Catholic Church goes directly against both the teaching of Scripture and the historical process by which the 66 books of the Old and New Testament were collected into one canon. And we find in Scripture and historically that it was through the teaching and events that we find recorded in Scripture that birthed the original Christian church. So therefore, the authority of the Bible stands over any church tradition. And R.C. Sproul explains it as, The process of receiving the canon in the first centuries of the church testifies that the earliest church understood the written word of God to have authority over the church of God. So now for us to wrap up today, we're going to talk about seeing the divine glory of Scripture for yourself. And at this point, we've flown over this topic and we've looked at it from a 30,000 foot view. 
We talked about the historical account and accord for what the scriptures say. We talked about the initial canonization of the 66 books that we call the Bible. And we even talked about the more difficult things to discuss, such as the blasphemy of the Catholic Church, which we're going to dive into again in an upcoming series based on false teaching. And basically, what we've reviewed at this point barely starts to scratch the surface of the vast discussion that is the truth of the Bible. And the point to take away from all of this is that through archaeology and the historical record, we find corroboration for the events that we are told happened in the Bible. We find that the word is non-contradictory through a literary and academic standpoint, and we have tested the claims made in the Bible to the same standards that we hold any other significant historical document, and it holds up completely. Therefore, we can now come to the conclusion that it makes complete logical sense that we can fully trust the Bible in its claims and in its authority. And in light of our abundance of evidence and findings, it would be illogical to arrive at any other conclusion. And now we're able to perform the last task of all, and it's the easiest, simply just observing. And now I want to present to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel but by one step, and that is its divine glory. Of course, the, the problem is that, by nature, we are blind to the glory of God. We suppress it. We love the darkness, and Jesus says this to us in John 3.19. And Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? We have eyes, but we don't see, and ears, but we don't hear. The only hope for us to see the glory of God in Scripture and have a well-grounded confidence that it is the Word of God is for God to perform a miracle and take away our spiritual blindness that we're all born with. And Paul says that God, in fact, does do this. You see, God comes to us and he speaks a word of new creation just like he did in the old creation and says, let there be light. And that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And we are given life and new spiritual eyes that we can see what is really there. You see and know that the world is God's creation. You can see and know that Christ is truly the Son of God. And you can see and know that the gospel is true and the way to life. You can also see and know that this radical Christian, Jesus, who humbly and joyfully lays down his life for his enemy, is shining with the true glory of God. And in the same way you know that the scriptures are true, you can see the glory of God. And you know that this is not the mere work of man. This is of God. And that wraps up our first episode on our first series titled Our Beliefs. These first few episodes are going to be a bit shorter as we're just kind of laying the groundwork for some of the deeper topics that we're going to dive into in future series. So make sure that you subscribe to the Burning Bush podcast and check out our website at burningbush.blog. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week as we talk about the Trinity.